This is Dabalon. My name is Trent Reynolds, and in this podcast, I have conversations with artists about materials. If you are enjoying this podcast and want it to continue, please subscribe or make a one-time contribution at dabalon.com forward slash podcast. That's spelled D-A-B-B-L-E-O-N dot com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can also leave me a five-star rating on iTunes and tell all your friends. The longevity of this program very much depends on your support, and I thank you. In this episode, I am talking with one of my studio mates, David Lloyd. For the first few episodes, I have felt like I didn't dig deep enough into materials. So for this conversation, we jumped right into it. If you want to know more biographical information about David and see his work, which I highly recommend you do, you can find all of this at his website, thehouseofloyd.com, or you can find him on Instagram at David underscore Lloyd. And here's my conversation with artist David Lloyd. Let's, are we starting? Yeah, we've already started. We've already started. This is all material. We're done. Gold. Gold. Material. Audio, gold. audio gold. Eternal flame. So back when I first met you, we were over at the other studio space. That mm-hmm. was before we were uh, in this studio space. Yeah. Um, I primarily only knew you to be a painter. Yes. Right? And that continued into this space. Yes. You know, where you're doing primarily shaped paintings. Yeah. Um, I guess I did, I was kind of aware that you were including collage in there as well. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, photographs that you tore from books and stuff like that, and bits of paper, bits of fabric, you know, a little bit of everything. So I guess I was aware that you're, you know, kind of mixed media in your approach. Um, but then more recently, and this is kind of what I wanted to dig into a bit, is... Uh, I guess it's been a couple of years probably now, you started picking up these, uh, the clay. Clay, and, yeah, and it's, uh, I always was making objects. I've never considered myself to be a painter with a capital P. It's more like I'm an artist who happens to make paintings. So a lot of the shape why is things... That, why is that distinction important? Because it frees you up. I mean, I know painters that are like, you know, I use this kind of oil paint and I paint on, I always paint on a rectangle and I prime my canvases this way and it's right. just never, my brain doesn't work that way. It works, I think of materials as just, um, any material could create anything. So a painting could be made out of things that aren't paint and... Uh, Is that how you've always thought about it? Like yeah. back when you were a kid or back when I was whenever a kid. it started? And certainly at art school, I had... At art school, I was sawing into wood and pouring car paint on it, automotive paint, and uh, using uh, bits of steel and all sorts of shit. Yeah, I was very, I was always working on um, very, very mixed media approach to making art. And my painter friends, who are real serious painters, and there's nothing wrong with it, they make great work, but you know, it's it's oil on canvas. Right. And it's just not how I see art. I just see art as this um, highly flexible thing that can be a whole bunch of different things. And that's why mm. ceramics, for me, wasn't that big a leap. 
The right. ceramic play is just one more material among a million others. Had and you ever worked with ceramic at all? A little bit. Uh, I mean, I think that um, not much, you know, just fooling around with little things, but I, I never really could do much. I know that um, I took a couple classes in hand building to learn a few things the, Oops, sorry. My, yeah. about, uh, about how to put stuff together, but very little instruction. Um, it's very expensive to take classes and then the kiln takes forever. Yeah. And once we had a kiln here, that was it. See, it opened me up because I could just play around and fire things kind right. of at will. And that was the turning point with ceramics because I kind of always wanted to do them. Right. And uh, ceramics are very hip right now. And I want to say that I always wanted to do ceramics for the last 15 years, but it doesn't count for much. When, <laughs> when, I, I liked it before it was cool. I liked it, it before. I really did, but, you know, I didn't act on it, so I can't call it. You can't know, it looks it. I just yeah. like every other dopey artist who wants to be a ceramicist <laughs> now. Um, so, but, I, but the kiln made all the difference because I did yeah. do a few things and through some commercial places, and I waited, you know, two months to have something fired, and I thought, the hell with this, this is, right. this doesn't work. So, yeah. You know, that, that brings up something interesting. I've noticed so often that, um, you know, people create, I guess it's an obvious statement, like the, the accessibility of materials dictate how people th create, you know, the artwork that they, they make. Not only that, it dictates what they think art is. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Oh yeah. Like, uh, you know, if if you don't have access to a kiln, you know, that's it's then just it's harder to make. It's like it's, it's as if it weren't even, even there for you, right? Like right. it wasn't even an option, and maybe it's not. Wasn't an option. Whereas sometimes, <clears throat> in classes, if I just bring a new material, and they just have to pick it up. Right, mm -hmm. like just the removing the friction. Absolutely. All of a sudden, it's like the light goes on. It's like, oh, I didn't know this was even an option. Every yeah, I knew a woman uh, back um, who went to Cal Arts and became a. You know, in the eighties, became a somewhat well-known artist, and she would um, use wood, but she would cut out um, pieces of sandpaper and piece them together and use them as sort of geometric collage to create these figurative things. And they were amazing, and they were just store-bought sandpaper, nothing about them. But when you saw them up on the wall um, on a work of art, they were as, worked as well as oil paint. You know, they right. did what they did. And, and uh, I don't think people think of materials that way. They think, people literally say, I say, what do you do? Well, mostly painting. They go oil or acrylic, and it's like, wait, I don't know that and ten thousand other things. Right, but, and encaustic, and, and encaustic, and, and you know, I use fiberglass and, and resin and and uh, right everything. I mean, right now I'm mostly using just acrylic because it's fitting my my needs as far right. as painting goes. But um, the Certainly paint works well for certain things. I mean, if you want to make a realist painting, nothing's better than oil paint. Right. It just works. And that's what that's why people used it all these hundreds of years. But right. you know, art now is there's no sort of limits on that stuff. So So where, how do you think you arrived there? How do you how do you think that you ultimately gave yourself 
permission or that your mind was even aware of, you know, that there really is not there. Those distinctions between art materials and non-art materials are a fiction, right? They're, they're not real. I think it was a little bit of like, almost like an ADD and a stubbornness about kind of like, who says I have to use that? Like a weird kind of rebelliousness, even though it's not particularly rebellious because almost before I was born, Robert Rauschenberg was always was already doing a lot of this stuff. It's not like I was breaking some new ground, but the point was is that uh, I like the idea that I could go in and get an effect from house paint and surfboard resin that I might not um, get from oil paint, or it might it might take me you know, two years of fussing that I could get in 10 minutes some other way. So it's like a way of just speeding things up. So that's interesting. So it was more of a practicality that drove your interest in other materials. Practicality like, and a... Well, and that a, implies, of course, that you had a vision, right? Like you had stuff that you wanted to get done and you didn't really care where the tool came from. Yeah, but I was, I've always been super willing to have an idea of how it looks. And then when it looks completely different, be okay with that. I'm always... I, one of the things when I've taught is, you know, they call the happy accident. Well, I would say so much of my practice has been letting things, letting accidents happen and then riffing off them. Wow, that cracked. It wasn't supposed to, but what, what is that? Now what possibilities it give us? Instead of going back to the drawing board endlessly and saying, I have to make this perfect thing that will never crack. If it cracks over and over again, then I say... Okay, it's meant to crack. Now where do I go with it? That's just me. Some people can't work that way. They find it um, too open-ended. Um, but to me, it's what makes art so fun because it's, a, it's sort of a non-linear process where you, you go one way and you hit like a roadblock and then you go down another road and you hit a cul-de-sac and turn around and come back and you keep finding it's like a a maze, and then you find all these things, and then people will say to me, oh my God, how did you get that effect? And it's like, well, trial and error. I just tried stuff. And for every one I get, I get a bunch that don't work. But I've said this before, is that in the studio, make a lot of stuff, and if you're lucky enough to be a showing artist, you don't have to show everything. You know, you can edit out the good stuff and leave the bad stuff but don't don't be don't add it too much in the creation process when you're making it you have to the you know that's just that's how i think yeah and well i think it's also the case that like there's so much editing that happens before you even start right like right everybody edits everybody well, everybody has and that's a biases. problem right like yeah. that i think that that mentality of you know that just the fear of screwing up you know yeah, and that's what makes people like Rauschenberg so unusual is that he, um, you know, we take for granted things like putting anything up on a wall and kind of calling it art and bits and pieces and a piece of attire or this and that, but it feels like that guy was doing it at a time when it really wasn't it was really unknown territory. And that's what's so amazing about something like that. But we, 
as modern contemporary artists have access to other materials, um, CNC machines and plastics and different kinds of resins and and computers and video cameras and you name it. So we have a whole bunch of but um, the the uh, idea of of the painter, you know, there's. I love Picasso and all that stuff, but the idea of the, the painter, Picasso, it's the man with the big brush, right, and all that stuff, that's not interesting to me. I mean, a lot of my favorite artists have just been kind of weird outliers. They paint, but they um, they just make stuff. They're right. makers. They make things. I, I wonder if Rauschenberg, you know, just hearing you talk, and this is probably something somebody's already said, you know, I read it somewhere, <laughs> like stealing stuff, but mm -hmm. it, I think... You know, I think a lot of non-artists look at him, and probably a lot of the interest in his work came from this incense, it, people being feeling incensed, right? Mm -hmm. About you know, like that's not art. That's the oh, I are... can't only imagine when he first put like the goat with the the goat with and the tire, tire on the, or something. People yeah. were like, "What in the hell does this? Who does this guy think he did?" But you know, they thought that about. But I, I wonder though, like. Monet, they thought he was blind or something. He couldn't right. see what he was painting. So you know, this is this is the history of art right there. Right. Yeah. That, God, w w if we could make something that people would say, "What the hell is that?" You know, you're onto something, right? right. It's hard, harder to do than it looks. You're challenging assumptions. You're uh, kind of broadening the scope of what's possible and what's available. Yep. But I, I wonder, like Rauschenberg, maybe his greatest contribution is not necessarily to this uh, narrative of art history but to like opening our eyes the, ar the artist's eyes like he's he was an artist that gave artists permission he gave artists permission and you know Duchamp kind of did it but Duchamp was more of a I feel like Duchamp was more of a social commentary or kind of trickster yeah. it's yeah. it's Dada whereas it, which is which is another thing which has influenced contemporary conceptual art but yeah. I feel like Rauschenberg was just this, just like an inventor, like a, an innovator, like somebody just burrowing down into what's possible. And, and I get the, I, I've always got the sense that he really loves the materials. Right? He loved the materials. He loved to see where they go. Like Duchamp, you don't get the sense that he has special feelings about a urinal or no, no, glass no, no, or no, anything. No, that, like, is a, that is just a piece of, of, that urinal is there to make you... Not to contemplate urinals, but to right. contemplate the idea of that as a work of art. I think, and yeah, it's clever. It's it's a middle finger. It's you know, it's a lot of things. I'll but tell you something funny though. What's that? I said to myself, if I ever meet Rauschenberg, I'm going to say, fill in the blank. And I met him at a party, and I just stood there, like an idiot. <laughs> and I said, couldn't do it. Well, um, you've sure been a big influence on me. Oh man! And I was like, yeah, "What do you <laughs> say? Funny? What do you say?" Funny? Well, he was introduced to me as my friend Bob, and I was like, oh, "Okay, Bob, hey Bob," and I was like, "Whoa, right. oh, no, that's Bob Rauschenberg." Right. That's, that's so anyway, a special that Bob. Pretty cool though. Right. It was cool, but I kind of blew it. I look like an idiot, but that's okay. Yeah, I think that's pretty. That's cool. all right. Huh. So, uh, so back to back to ceramics though. You had kind of been thinking about ceramics, but there's this barrier of cost and accessibility and... Uh, cost, you know, accessibility, and, and the kiln 
fix that. So what, did, what was it all along in those years that you had kind of had this curiosity in the back of your mind? What did ceramics offer you that you weren't able to find? Or what problem did it solve that you weren't able to solve elsewhere? Well, materials? I think that the idea of, uh, of ultimately the first idea was the idea of, of the alchemy of ceramics is the idea of um, taking some sort of dirt mm. and building something and then firing at these insane temperatures and creating things that way. So the whole alchemy, and that's the same alchemy as if you take oil paint and water-based paint and surfboard resin and duck feathers and put it together, something's going to happen, good or bad, yeah. right? It's the same thing with ceramics. Um, that's sort of what, what got me interested in it um, was the unpredictability of it. Um, the, uh, but that also was a frustration mm. that you, with glaze, you, um, you put something down that is supposed to be a beautiful sort of teal green and it ends up being kind of a poopy brown. Right. And it could be a number of reasons that happens, but it does right. happen all the time, things like that. And that leads me to the second part of this, my ceramic journey right is i thought i'm coming to ceramics trying to be a ceramicist right. and i decided i have to come to ceramics from painting and materials completely right. different so and traditionally like a ceramicist they have a i don't know there's there's different kinds of artists in every medium but there is definitely a vein of ceramics that's very purist right like oh they're purist you don't, as can be you do not want to you cannot taint Right. your ceramic object with something that's not exactly and you know, that an improved is something, material right and if i had sort of endless money to collect there are ceramicists that are the purest of pure who make just unbelievable things you know these vessels that are paper thin and they use these incredible glazes and they're 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 sort of um magicians with this stuff right very disciplined very it's a different thing that's not me I was not trying to do that, but I was really trying to follow all these ceramics rules, and it was screwing me all up. And I thought to myself, well, in the art world, this isn't really the ceramics world as much, but in the art world, the most famous ceramicist I ever met or heard of growing up being in L.A. was Kenny Price. Ken Price was a guy that was in the Venice art scene and was friends with all the Venice guys and everything, and he came up as a ceramicist and he made drawings and things, but his most famous work is acrylic on stoneware. And I thought to myself, well, the most well-known, one of the most well-known ceramicists in LA, you know, there's other people, Peter Volkos, people like that, but the most, I thought, well, hell, if he can do it, I can do it. And then I thought, well, what about, what else can you use on clay, you know, when you, after you've fired it? Hmm. So, so I've been experimenting with um, paint, various kinds of paints and coatings and enamels and epoxies, as well as um, glazes, like cone five, six glazes, commercial glazes. Right. Um, and just coming, I'm trying to get that, that kind of alchemy in mm -hmm. a different way. 
and uh, it's been now really once, interesting. Once you go with anything ex other than a glaze, like if you went to some kind of painter epoxy or other mm -hmm. thing, um, you wouldn't then put it back in the kiln. You right? do not put it back in the yeah. kiln. So all the firing and glazing and this and that, you do first. That's an important and point you, because you don't, once you've gone, once you've put this other stuff on, that's kind of it. You don't go back. And do you get to a point with the glazing where you're like, this isn't quite doing what I want it to do, so I'm going to go... Well, that's how it started. I would get to the glazing, and I wouldn't do what I wanted to do, then I would reglaze and reglaze and reglaze, and every now and then it would be fantastic, and sometimes it wasn't, it didn't work at all. And so I started thinking, well, what if I glaze parts of it and paint parts, or right. do something, like I'm working on something right now that has a kind of... Uh, a, a crawl going on and a, a crawl is like a thing that kind of fractures mm. but there's open areas that I'm going to use other surfaces and it's not going back in the kiln but I want to make things that are permanent so I'm using some materials that are extremely tough and permanent so it's not like they're not really that they're not delicate you know right. like the surfaces aren't they don't because I want something that has a kind of permanence of a I mean, pottery is, it, you drop it, it breaks or cracks, right. but the surface of glaze is very tough. Right. It's hard. Well, I can see how you'd want some kind of like material consistency. You wouldn't want to yeah. pair it with something No, that I'm not trying to. I mean, people do that. There's people who make things that are, have all different kinds of, the surfaces are all different and everything, but I want some kind of consistency. And I always want it to feel like a really out there glaze, mm. you know? Like it cut does, you know, when you look at them, most people think they're glazed. I don't hide the fact that it's not all glazed. I don't care, but um, they look like traditional ceramics, but the surfaces, if you look at them, are pretty out there. Right. I think it'd be tough to get what I'm doing with glaze. I don't know if you even could. Right. I don't know if you could, which is fine. I mean, that's cool. Well, that's part of it. That's part of the advantage. That's right? part of the advantage. You come from painting. I know you come from painting. You know, the, the, you, that's what I know. I know materials in that way. I don't know right. glaze. Glaze is, it's, glaze is chemistry. Yeah. You don't, that was when I first tried something. I went to a place and learned it. What I did is I made some little bowl or something, and I took every glaze in there and just poured it over the top, and I thought, I'll show them. These, these people are uptight. They don't know what real art looks like. And it just looked like somebody barfed on it. And I was, because chemically everything reacted to other things, not, right. but not in a good way. Right. And I thought, oh my God, I, this is, this is going to be rough. You could spend your whole life becoming an expert uh, on glazes and you could do amazing and stuff. And people do, by the way. But the opportunity cost is that you don't get to explore other materials, right? And I, and I kind of feel like there's an analogy here to be made with music. Like you could spend your whole life digging into music theory, mm -hmm. but then you're not making that really simple melody, uh, you know, rock and roll song that affects, you know, the ge a generation. You might become a master of your instrument. I, I don't know, when it can't, comes, like I've played a little bit of music in my life, and what would interest me about music would be to, shows how old I am, mission the Beatles, but, you know, they used horns and strings and funny noises and everything, and a lot of a lot of musicians have done this, is that same thing. How do you get to something? Does a 
a can of Red Bull getting tapped on make as good a sound as a, a drum? I don't know. Probably not, but what, why, why not? You know, it's sort of the same thing. Like, what can it be? And that doesn't mean that it's all, that you're talking about difficult experimental music. You're just talking about the, the it's like a, the materials. What can you do with these, with sounds to create stuff? And that's always been interesting to me, this whole idea of the broadness of, of the world is how many ways you can do things. But I don't particularly like experimental atonal music, oddly enough. It's not my thing. But, you know, that just like we were saying, that, that experimentation gives permission for people to do Yeah, people take it all different ways. Uh, but I, I, well, I wonder about that. Like, I think there are plenty of artists out there that are interested in locking in on a single material. They like that limitation. They like having those really strict parameters, mm -hmm. and then they go for depth. You know, they just keep on yes. pushing and that. Yes, that is craft another way of making art, which is equally as valid, equally as productive. Um, you know, I'm reading. I just got uh, this book about Philip Guston. Mm. You know, Guston painted on rectangles, and he painted with oil paint. Right. He didn't do any of the stuff. Or none of it. Right. And I think the paintings are absolutely some of my favorite works of art ever made. And there's nothing about them where he was saying, hey, I think I'll try this. But that's not the artist he was, you know. That, but that, right. that way of giving yourself parameters and seeing how far you can go within that, that has been the history of painting, really, is a rectangle or a square. Right. And what can I do inside that? But, you know, the first time I saw a shape Frank Stella, I was like, wow. You know, I was a kid, but I was like, holy crap, this thing is, is that a painting or what, what is it? Right. Hey, maybe it's a sculpture. That's cool. I can be a painter and a sculptor, and right. I don't have to dec decide either. Right. You know, so, so that, yeah. Was, do you think, is, was Stella the first uh, shaped paintings that you were exposed to that got... Well, the first, that about? was the first sort of shape stuff I looked at. Is mm -hmm. I, I, I had a Picasso book when I was a kid that my parents gave to my brother mm -hmm. who had no interest in art. And I was the little brother and I got a hold of it. And this is like 1960. Mm -hmm. I was like five or six. Yeah, I mean, he's a little older. Maybe I was six or seven. Anyway, it showed Picasso this book. I have it in, the, in that room in there right now. Hmm. Um, in my studio, and it showed Picasso just walking around his studio um, with, uh, a lot of times he was in his underpants, yeah, and he totally. would be like have a cig hanging out of his mouth, or and he would be painting, and there would be paintings all over the place, and he'd have a food and half drink and wine bottle there, and I looked at it, and for some reason I thought, this is, this is the greatest thing ever, and that is a completely <laughs> different, that's like the way to be an artist, is you just, it's freedom. Right. It's freedom. It's all freedom. It's, it's freedom. all about freedom. You also teach, right? Yeah. So would you say, um, like, I, I'm realizing now just talking about this, like, uh, there is something specific that I love about art and making art that I want other people to experience, mm -hmm. right? And I guess maybe I've been, been a little bit narrow-minded in thinking that that is what art ought to be, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just as narrow-minded as you know somebody that paints their whole life, you know, portraits, oil on linen, right? Like, yeah. Um, and sees no other art as being valid, right? So right. I've got, my, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm kind. Well, of, everybody's biased. Right. Right. There's but, no human that isn't biased about something, so we're all biased. But I think, I think that's kind of where 
perhaps we have a, uh, similarities is like, man, I just love materials. I love experimenting I love and materials. seeing what materials and can do. There's a poetry to materials, right? You know, materials means have meaning. They don't. They're not. And and one of my my great peeves about a lot of art getting made, particularly right now, is that it's so specific that it feels like it may not have a long shelf life. And I understand why artists want to do that. I mean, things happen in the world and you want to react to it. Everything. And it could be, it, it's not even a political thing. It could be you want to react to uh, something that's happened in your family or anything. But thing about art that's so interesting, and art that lasts has this sort of timeless quality. And that's something that I'm very interested in trying to get through through objects. And maybe that's why I'm interested in abstraction, is some people might look at it, well, it's meaningless. You can add any meaning you want to it. Well, maybe so. That Maybe you could say that. I hope that they have kind of an aura that lasts. It's, the aura is the same now as it will be in 100 years. But if something is about, a, 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 you know, if you make a piece about um, global warming, say, Maybe it'll be relevant, you know, later when we're looking at global warming differently or if there's less of it or more of it or anything. Maybe it won't have any meaning at all, you know. Um, there's a lot of, I remember in the 80s, people were always making these things showing, you know, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan with a holding his finger on the button. You know, they were all worried that Reagan was going to blow up the world. Those things look as dated as a frickin', they look so out of date. And so... Getting back to the materials, sort of the poetry of a material doing something next to another material is almost like the like notes, a music, a bass, and a guitar and a violin next to each other or something. They do something, and maybe they do something that has more lasting meaning than than something else. But that's again, I never. That's just how I think. It doesn't. I don't know if I'm right. That's just the way my brain works. And so when I teach, I sort of think in those terms. I I um, I'm not interested in literalness in art. It doesn't interest me. The world's so literal. Oh my God, you know the world we live in a in a world where with uh, 24-hour news and and everything else, the world is very clear what's happening around us. There's doesn't this art's like the mystery. It's like in a weird way, it's like religion, and I don't mean it's religious necessarily, but it's that it's it's um, mining the mystery, and there's so few places in the world that anybody does that. Who does that? You know what I mean? So that's what's interesting to me in the in art making. Maybe that ties into though that. Um seeing the the potential of materials for what they can do you know in the context of art and not just locking in and, and isolating them to a function right like yeah like when you see asphalt or you know that's that could be used as an art material it sure, has a if character it's a, on the street it's asphalt if it's if it's piled in a box in a gallery it's something else that way of of literalizing, mm -hmm. right, a, a material saying like this is asphalt. Asphalt means road, right? Or, yeah. you know, and rather what than that, what if you make a figure out of asphalt? Okay, now it means road, but it means figure. Now what the hell is going on? All of a sudden you have something. 
you have a human made out of asphalt, okay, that could be two things, but it could be a million other things too. Right. But that kind of being willing to, that's a, it's a way of going through the world, right? That's, that's kind of what you're talking about. Like, yeah. I think just the way people think, politics, the way they approach any kind of subject is, is susceptible to that same kind of worldview, like literal thinking versus, you know, this kind of connected... Non-literal yeah, thinking non, yeah. and, or binary thinking. I mean, I think that every, I think that there is a, a we've become a, moved into a, a state of very, very binary thinking in the world. There's good, bad, right, wrong, left, right. right. And human beings are much closer than they are apart. But nobody wants to think that way because the world's become very binary and tribal. And that kind of thing drives me crazy too. And I, it is just me again. I, I, it's how I, and I, I, I remember at CalArts, I was sort of, CalArts was a great school and I learned a lot and there were a lot of great teachers and everything, but I, they were always trying to force meaning, literal meaning out of things. It just drove me crazy. You know, it just was not, and somebody said, well, that's just art for art's sake. And I was like, oh, man, God, is that what that is? God, is that good? Maybe that's not good. And then later I was like, I wish I had been older. I was like, yeah, so what? I mean, it's like, well, that's music for music's sake. That's just, what does that dog do? What well, doesn't do anything? It's being a dog. It's a dog for dog's sake. I mean, what the, what the hell does that even mean? It's such a bizarre thing because, you know, art, it's got to do things. You know, everything has to have a function in this world. You know, everything has to be, have a purpose. We live in a, every, everything you do has a purpose. And says who? Who decided that? Right. You know, and yeah, you have to, there's purpose. I mean, you have to make a living and you have to, you know, do, uh, in fact, most of life is purpose-driven. But when an artist goes in the studio, my God, give them a break. Let yeah. them just make whatever. Well, that phrase feels like, you know, people who don't understand what's, what they're looking at desperately trying to categorize, oh right? I, desperately I, trying to, to figure out how they can understand that, you know, and if they can just dismiss it by saying, oh, that's just, Art for art's sake, right? Like, well, like that means nothing. It, it means doesn't nothing. mean anything. And the the with abstraction, it's funny because I'm teaching, doing a lot of stuff with teaching with that kind of abstraction, and and they say, I see a dog, you know, I see a tree, I see a chicken, I see this, and I'm saying, okay, if we turn it upside down, now what do you see? Ah, I guess I see an upside down chicken, but also, wait, I see a face, and I'm, and it's so funny because it is a it takes a long time to look at things and let them just be what they are as opposed to not make a narrative. And I, I, I think it's because, and I don't know this because I'm not a scientist, but I think it's probably, as I was thinking, you know, if you're looking at a, you're standing on a field in the Kalahari Desert, you know, 10,000 years ago, and you see a bush. We talked about this. You see a bush... And, uh, and if you can't decipher the lion against that bush as a shape and make meaning out of it, you're screwed. So 
that's how the human mind works. Right. There is this kind of existential panic people have sometimes when oh they look God, at Oh my God, they look abstract. at it and they go, I don't know what I'm looking at. And it's like, okay, that's okay. You don't have to know. What do you mean I don't have to know? Doesn't it mean? No, maybe Nothing's going to leap out and bite you, you yeah, know, if you don't understand happen? it. Let's look at this painting here. It's red and it's uh, got a lot of stuff on it. Wow, what, what is it? Right. Panic. How would you characterize, how would you, you describe what you are teaching people in your classes other than materials, right? Because we've already talked about like the materials are a means to an end, they're tools. Uh -huh. What is it that you're teaching people? I think it's very, very difficult to teach art. I think you can teach technique. You can say, you know, if you mix this color with that color, you get this color. And if you have a light source or something, if you're doing something, a picture of something from here, you have a shadow over here. I mean, and it goes on from there. There's a lot of technical. But teaching, I think what I try to do is get people to follow some thread that's interesting to them down the rabbit hole and see where it takes them. And um, generally I found that the, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't, what is this good, is this bad? If you can get them out of that kind of thinking, don't think about good, don't think about bad, whether you like it, you don't like it, just get in the process and, and follow things that you think are interesting and, and let that develop into a language or a, some sort of way of making something that feels unique to you. And it's interesting because um, almost consistently when people are with, with the way I teach, it's not everybody, you know, some people start with very technical stuff and they, they believe that first you learn all this, all this technique and then you can make whatever you want. But I found that if you give, if people become too technique driven, they simply can't, that's like a trap. It's like a gilded cage they're stuck in. They can't get out of. What I found is interesting is when people are, are working in the unknown, very uncomfortable, they don't know what they're doing, something shifts and all of a sudden there's something they like about it and they do something that's interesting and then when you go over and make a suggestion, they go, I don't want to do that. And you're like, bingo. Right. Right? Right. You, now you're on your way. You've made a decision that's yours, not mine. I'm not telling you what to do. And that's a, a point where I think people start developing their own vocabulary. Because I don't think, um, you know, good art gets made by... People with good, I've seen great art made by people with very little skill, and I've seen really lousy art made by people with insane skills. So it, it's really, that's what's so hard about art. I think art schools have the problem is they have to kind of make meaning to kind of justify their existence in a way. Because once you give people certain tools and sort of cut them loose, what else are you going to do? I mean, you can say, well, you know, I mean, you can study philosophy and 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 all this stuff but it doesn't necessarily make for better art yeah. i think good art comes from going down the rabbit hole okay underrated art material oh wow well i would have said clay 10 years ago because nobody's using it now it's overrated art material um i would say anything at home depot that you really would never assume be an art material 
if you're uh, thinking about materials, go to a hardware store and walk the aisles and think, I can't imagine that a work of art and then think about that. Underrated artist or artist that you're thinking about right now? Somebody that's caught your attention or you, you find? Um, gosh, there's a lot of art out there. I haven't really... Um, I have a friend, Thad Strode, who's a, who I went to art, I went to um, Cal Arts with, that I feel like LA's never really gotten. He's sort of an artist artist, and he's shown a lot in Europe, but his paintings are just so out there. They're so strange and they're so weird and they're so hard to really define that they you just keep coming back to them over and over again. And What's I his name again? Thaddeus Strode. S-T-R-O-D-E? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and they're messy and kind of awkward and really sophisticated at the same time. I mean, they're just really interesting paintings, and I keep coming back to his work as a kind of... And if I, you know, I'm on the spot now, so I can't really think, but I'm sure later I'll come up with five other artists that I think are cool right now. No, that's great. Th that yeah. is true. But he's, he's sort of off in the... He's, he's in the weeds a little bit. He's not... He hasn't shown a lot in Los Angeles. A book, art book. That's worth checking out. Uh, I just read a, 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 this book. It's right there because Yumi's borrowing it about a Gauguin, and Gauguin was controversial and kind of a crackpot and had some pretty obvious issues. But just the paintings just blow my mind. They blow my mind. We've seen how he um, put these things together, and um, the the uh, the time. When, which was a completely colonialist idea of, of sort of the noble savage. Right. Um, and which is controversial in itself, but the paintings that came out of this kind of twisted idea of getting back to, to a, a pure time, you know, some idea these Europeans are going to go live in Tahiti or something and purify and the thing. But, what, but the art that came out of it was so strange. I mean, to this day, they still feel like like I was saying, like really hard to categorize. And, his, and that whole period, the sort of period of, um, of the turn of century that's been talked about so much um, in ceramics, in furniture, in objects, in painting, turn, turn of the century um, France, which was a revolutionary time. You know, the, the whole world was looking at Paris and there was a lot of good things happening and bad things happening. And, but it was fascinating because uh, there was such strange stuff coming out of it. And in a way, a more, you know, we think we live, it was a more uptight world back then and we live in a freer world, but that world was pretty out there. I mean, it was just, you know, I mean, talk about Bohemian. Paul Gauguin, A Life by yep. David Sweetman. Yeah, it's a good book. It's really, it's, what's good about it is the period a period of, of reading, like uh, like the one of the great things is is Pissarro's wife saying, "Why the hell can't you be more like Renoir?" You know, he's out there selling, and you're off in the field painting these stupid things. I mean, it's so funny because it just sounds like you know it could be anybody saying anything to anybody today. You know, it's same old stuff. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Sure, over and out. I feel very fortunate to be surrounded by great artists at my studio, and, uh, and I'm happy to share some of them with you all. Again, for more information about David, his website is thehouseofloyd.com, 
and he is at David underscore Lloyd on Instagram. All of this information, some images, and a brief biography are also available at the website for this podcast, which is dablon.com forward slash podcast. And next week, I will have another conversation for you. So come back. Also, rate me on iTunes, subscribe on the website, and tell friends and family. And I think the challenge this week is go into the studio, go into the closet, find an old work of art that you could never quite sort out, could never quite get to work, and uh, tear it up or cover it up or get rid of it somehow and open up some space for something new to happen. Mm -hmm.